welcome to a special Christmas program of Faith of Our Fathers. We start with a Christmas classic from Paul Harvey, The Man and the Birds. As Job 12:7 tells us, ask the birds of the sky and they will tell you. Unable to trace its proper parentage, I have designated this as my Christmas story of the man and the birds. You know, the Christmas story, the God born a man in a manger and all that escapes some moderns, mostly I think because they seek complex answers to their questions, and this one's so utterly simple. So for the cynics and the skeptics and the unconvinced, I submit a modern parable. Now, the man to whom I'm going to introduce you was not a Scrooge. He was a kind, decent, mostly good man, generous to his family, upright in his dealings with other men, but he just didn't believe all that incarnation stuff which the churches proclaim at Christmas time. It just didn't make sense, and he was too honest to pretend otherwise. He just couldn't swallow the Jesus story about God coming to earth as a man. I'm truly sorry to distress you, he told his wife, but I'm not going with you to church this Christmas Eve. He said he'd feel like a hypocrite, that he'd much rather just stay at home, but that he would wait up for them. And so he stayed and they went to the midnight service. Shortly after the family drove away in the car, snow began to fall. He went to the window to watch the flurries getting heavier and heavier and then went back to his fireside chair and began to read his newspaper. Minutes later, he was startled by a thudding sound. Then another, and then another, sort of a thump or a thud. At first, he thought someone must be throwing snowballs against his living room window, but when he went to the front door to investigate, he found a flock of birds huddled miserably in the snow. They'd been caught in the storm, and in a desperate search for shelter, had tried to fly through his large landscape window. Well, he couldn't let the poor creatures lie there and freeze, so he remembered the barn where his children stabled their pony. That would provide a warm shelter if he could direct the birds to it. Quickly, he put on a coat, galoshes, tramped through the deepening snow to the barn. He opened the doors wide and turned on a light, but the birds did not come in. He figured food would entice them in. So he hurried back to the house, fetched breadcrumbs, sprinkled them on the snow, making a trail to the yellow-lighted, wide-open doorway of the stable, but to his dismay, the birds ignored the breadcrumbs and continued to flop around helplessly in the snow. He tried catching them. He tried shooing them into the barn by walking around them, waving his arms. Instead, they scattered in every direction, except into the warm-lighted barn. And then he realized that they were afraid of him. To them, he reasoned, I am a strange and terrifying creature. If only I could think of some way to let them know that they can trust me, that I'm not trying to hurt them, but to help them. But how? 
because any move he made tended to frighten them, confuse them. They just would not follow. They would not be led or shooed because they feared him. If only I could be a bird, he thought to himself, and mingle with them and speak their language. Then I could tell them not to be afraid. Then I could show them the way to the safe, warm... to the safe, warm barn, but I would have to be one of them so they could see and hear and understand. At that moment, the church bells began to ring. The sound reached his ears above the sounds of the wind, and he stood there listening to the bells, Adeste Fidelis, listening to the bells, pealing the glad tidings of Christmas and he sank to his knees in the snow. Paul Harvey is now being followed by John Stott. He was an English Christian leader and an Anglican cleric, a leader of the worldwide evangelical movement. Listen to this thoughtful sermon on the virgin birth. We begin today a series of addresses entitled Our Lord Jesus Christ. I should not, I think, need to emphasize the vital importance of this subject. It can be simply stated, right views of Christianity depend upon right views of Christ. As John Newton put it in a little verse, what think ye of Christ is the test to try both your state and your scheme. You cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him. And so in this series, our first topic is the virgin birth of Jesus. Here is a doctrine which we confess every Sunday in the Apostles' Creed, stating that he was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. We sing of this doctrine too in the Te Deum, Thou didst not abhor the virgin's womb. Yet it has proved a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence to many people and has been assailed from both inside and outside the church. The Jewish Ebionites in the early days rejected it, so did the Gnostic sects. Marcion, who was one of them in the middle of the second century, constructed and issued a New Testament of his own from which he had presumed to expunge all Old Testament references. His reconstructed New Testament had only one Gospel, St. Luke's, and only ten of St. Paul's thirteen epistles. And from his Gospel of Luke he had cut out the birth and infancy narratives of the first two chapters. His Gospel began with words of Luke 3 verse 1, continuing in chapter 4 verse 31 like this. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius, he came down, um, indicating that he came down from heaven, he came down to Capernaum, city of Galilee. So, according to Markian, Jesus had no birth at all, let alone a virgin birth. In the same way, uh, rationalists denied the doctrine in the nineteenth century. Uh, one of the most famous, I suppose, is Joseph Renaud, who began the second chapter of his Vie de Jésus with the words, Jesus was born at Nazareth, a small town of Galilee, which before his time had no celebrity. 
His father Joseph and his mother Mary were people in humble circumstances. Uh, this book created a sensation on the continent when it was published in 1863. But really it is a flagrant disregard of the biblical evidence which cannot be dismissed in this arrogant and cavalier fashion. Well, there are three aspects of this doctrine which we may consider together. First, its precise meaning, what is the virgin birth? Second, its historical truth, did it happen? And third, its theological importance, does it matter? And I want at this point to read two verses from the first chapter of St. Luke's Gospel, verses 34 and 35. After the angelic uh, annunciation to Mary, then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. First then, the meaning of the virgin birth. What is it? Virgin birth is a popular expression for the miracle by which the supernatural personality of Jesus was constituted. It's an expression, the virgin birth, which describes his mode of entry into the world. But I must say that it's a misleading expression. It's not always understood. Indeed, there is widespread confusion about its meaning. Let me state two negative points here. First, the virgin birth concerns Jesus Christ and does not concern uh, the birth of the Virgin Mary. That is, the virgin birth is not to be confused with the Immaculate Conception. The Immaculate Conception is a Roman Catholic dogma that, uh, if I may quote, from the first moment of her conception, the Blessed Virgin Mary was, by the singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, and in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, Saviour of mankind, kept free from all stain of original sin. This is a quotation from the definition of the dogma made by Pope Pius IX in 1854. Now, if the Immaculate Conception concerns the birth of the Virgin Mary and is a doctrine without any biblical or historical foundation, the virgin birth concerns the birth of Jesus Christ and is a doctrine with plain biblical and historical warrant. Then the second point is that the virgin birth concerns the conception rather than the birth of Jesus. But in the expression virgin birth, the emphasis is really on the wrong word. There is nothing miraculous about the birth of Jesus. It's his birth of a virgin, which was the miracle. Indeed, it's more than that. For in these days, when the strange phenomenon of called parthenogenesis is scientifically known, even birth of a virgin appears not to be unique. But what was unique about the birth of Jesus was his conception by the supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit. Luke 1 verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This overshadow 
verb is an important one. It indicates, no doubt, the cloud of the divine presence which would surround her. Let's be clear about this then. The Virgin Mother's cooperation in the process, her pregnancy and her delivery, and the baby's birth were all quite normal and natural. The supernatural element, the miraculous mystery of it, was the secret work of the Holy Spirit overshadowing the Virgin Mary. So the Apostles' Creed says that he was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. How this miraculous conception took place we do not know. As one commentator rightly says, in the delicacy and sobriety of the biblical story, no unnecessary details are given. We may perhaps conclude this section with the verse in St. Matthew chapter 1 verse 18, which in the Revised Standard Version reads, When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. So much for our first section, the meaning of the virgin birth, what is it? Now second, the fact of the virgin birth, did it happen? We know that many people have denied it and do still deny it today. It is fashionable in the 20th century in some church circles to refer to the virgin birth as a myth. That is a story which has religious truth but no historical foundation. The call comes to us from the continent and specially from Bultmann to demythologize it, that is to say to preserve its religious value but to reject the historical framework. Now let us begin in considering this matter by remembering that the question of the conception and birth of Christ is part of a much bigger question involving the person of Christ. It is uh, a truth that a denial of his virgin birth has usually been accompanied by a rejection of belief in his deity. Now, I'm not concerned to argue today with those who deny either the supernatural in general or the incarnation in particular. I wouldn't seek to defend the historicity of the virgin birth to such people because we have no common ground on which to discuss it. It would be necessary to talk with such folk about miracles in general and about the evidence for the deity of Jesus in particular. But I'm concerned rather with someone who grants both that miracles are possible and that the incarnation of God in Christ is a fact and is yet uncertain about the virgin birth as the mode of Jesus' entry into the world. What shall we say to such people? Our starting point is that the virgin birth is stated and described by both Matthew and Luke in the New Testament. It's quite irrelevant to say that the virgin birth was not mentioned by the other two evangelists, Mark and John or, for that matter, by other New Testament writers in the epistles. There are many indications that they knew about the virgin birth. But the silence of Mark and John is of no significance, since they did, did not set out to describe the birth of Jesus at all. John begins with the pre-incarnate Logos, the Word of God, who he says was made flesh, 
without stopping to indicate how. Mark begins his gospel with the ministry of John the Baptist. You see, neither Mark nor John has any birth narrative at all. The point is that the only two gospels which do set out to describe the birth of Jesus and which include a narrative of the birth of Jesus both state plainly that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The question therefore resolves itself into whether the birth narratives of Matthew and Luke are trustworthy. And on this important question I have three things to say. A. That these narratives are historical. Let us remember that their authors, Matthew and Luke, were Christian men of honesty and integrity. I agree with Godet, uh, who says towards the end of his preface uh, to his commentary on St. Luke, that he had only two assumptions with which he approached the study of the gospel. Uh, this is what he says. The authors of our Gospels were men of good sense and good faith. Now that is a perfectly right assumption with which to begin our study of the Gospels. These men were Christian men. They were men of good sense, they were intelligent people, and they were men of good faith, men of integrity and uprightness and, and honesty. They were followers of him who said that he was the truth, who said he'd come to bear witness to the truth who said that the truth would set people free. Why, truth is sacred to the Christian, and these men, Matthew and Luke, were followers of the truth. The alternative, you see, to accepting the veracity of their birth narratives is to say that they were guilty of a deliberate fiction, that they made up these stories. The stories are far too coherent far too full of factual references to imagine that they could be legendary accretions of another age, apart from the fact that there is no manuscript evidence whatever that these narratives did not belong from the very beginning to the Gospels in which we find them. Besides, Luke tells us in his preface what pains he had taken in his historical research, and he has been vindicated by recent scholars as a careful and accurate historian. As we read these birth narratives, we seem to be in the realm of history and not in the realm of legend or fiction. There's nothing vague in these stories like the fantastic birth story of the Buddha. No, we are given precise historical details about dates and people who are named and places so that the various parts of the story fit into a consistent whole. Further, the narrative is sober and simple and restrained. The sacred intimacies surrounding the conception and birth of Jesus are treated with the utmost reverence. There's nothing coarse in them like the immoral stories of the Greek and Roman gods and goddesses. The beauty of these gospel narratives stand out against what one writer has called the grotesque puerilities of the apocryphal Gospels. The whole story is told with such naturalness, such naivety. There's no attempt at apologetic, there's no argument, and certainly the early church accepted the stories without question as being true. 
That's my first point. They are historical. B, they are primitive. They are genuine parts of the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. They were not added later. There is no manuscript evidence that the Gospels were ever published without them. And so these stories must have been written very early indeed. They do not read like later legends. They cannot have been later legends. As you read them, they're extremely Jewish in their background and atmosphere and style. They evidently belong to the very period which they describe. As we read them, we seem to be transported into the Old Testament. We enter the Jerusalem temple where the Mosaic ritual is still being performed. We go into the homes of the godly Jewish remnant, people like Joseph and Mary, Anna and Simeon, Zechariah and Elizabeth, godly people, devout and pious Jews waiting for the kingdom of God. I say we seem to be reading the Old Testament as one and another of the characters breaks out into inspired utterance expressed in Hebrew parallelism like one of the Old Testament prophets. Almost certainly an Aramaic original lies behind the Greek versions in our Gospels, and Luke certainly will have translated this Aramaic original into his own Greek. So I say again, these are not only historical, but primitive narratives. They must have been written very early indeed, while the Jewish atmosphere was still preserved. Then see about these narratives, it's very important to see that they are independent of one another. Critics have argued that Matthew and Luke contradict each other and that there are irreconcilable discrepancies between the two accounts. Now this is not so, but it's important that critics have argued it because it is an indication of the independent origin of the birth narratives of Matthew and Luke. As Professor Sweet has written, the narrative of the conception in the first gospel is absolutely independent of the narrative in the third. There's no evidence whatever of collusion between Matthew and Luke. These authors did not collaborate. Matthew didn't borrow from Luke nor Luke from Matthew. They tell their story from an entirely different angle and they seem to be using a different source of information. So, you see, we have two narratives of the virgin birth and not only one. Indeed, each of these two stories complements and supplements the other and each needs the other. It isn't just that Matthew tells the story of the Magi while Luke tells the story of the shepherds. It is rather that Matthew explains Joseph's perplexity and how his fears about Mary's pregnancy were allayed and how he came after all to take her to be his wife. While Luke explains how Mary was prepared for the miraculous conception and humbly submitted to it. It's very likely therefore that Matthew's gospel account goes back to Joseph for he tells Joseph's story, while Luke's gospel goes back to Mary. One is Joseph's story, the other is Mary's story. Surely it is likely that both Joseph and Mary felt that they had a, a sacred responsibility to leave for posterity some record of the miraculous conception of Jesus. 
They were very reticent to talk about it during their lifetime, but they couldn't allow the secret to die with them. The church had a right to know the circumstances surrounding the birth of its Lord. And so Joseph and Mary probably told their story independently, and Matthew tells Joseph's story, and Luke tells Mary's story, and we have them both recorded in the canonical Gospels. We see, therefore, that the biblical evidence of the virgin birth is very strong. We have two narratives that are primitive, historical, and independent of one another, and yet they both bear witness in sober and in a credible manner to the miraculous conception of the Lord Jesus. So much for the fact of the virgin birth did it happen. That brings me to our third and last paragraph, which is the importance of the virgin birth, does it matter? It is sometimes said that the virgin birth is not a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith and that we can jettison it without uh, difficulty or qualms. Now the vigor with which this doctrine has been attacked suggests the contrary. For men do not waste their time or energy assailing trivialities. This doctrine has been assailed because it has been recognized as a fundamental doctrine and the Church has defended it with equal vigor because it has recognized its importance. Notice then in my text, verse 35 of Luke 1, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Notice that therefore. What the child Jesus was and what he was called arose necessarily out of how he was conceived and born. And remember that the manner of the child's procreation, determining his character, was not just that a virgin was his mother, but that the Holy Spirit came upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. What then was the result of this unique supernatural combination? our Lord's conception by the Divine Spirit and his birth of a human mother who was a virgin. From this, light is thrown on three important doctrines. A, the humanity of Jesus. Jesus didn't arrive on the earthly scene as a heavenly apparition. He was conceived in the womb of a human mother and born. Now this is a deduction, of course, from his birth rather than from his virgin birth, but it is important to state it. The Word was made flesh. How? By being born. She brought forth her firstborn son and laid him in a manger. So the birth of Jesus of a virgin throws light upon his real humanity. B. It throws light on his sinlessness. Again, my text, that holy thing which shall be born of thee. Or as the Revised Standard Version has it, the child to be born will be called holy. There is therefore evidently some link between the holiness of the character and conduct of Jesus and his miraculous conception. There is good evidence for the sinlessness of Jesus, which we shall be considering next time. And as we watch his sinless life exhibited in the Gospels and asserted by his followers, 
we are compelled to ask what can account for this sinlessness. Sin is a universal phenomenon in the world. How do you explain this unique sinless person in a universally sinful world? Well, the biblical answer, according to my text, is that his essential holiness of nature is directly connected with the manner of his conception and birth. His supernatural personality requires a supernatural birth to explain it as an effect requires a cause. His natural birth guarantees that his humanity was real. His supernatural conception guarantees that his humanity was perfect and sinless. There was a break in the transmission of original sin. It's not just because Jesus had only one human parent, since presumably the Virgin Mary could have transmitted original sin to him. It is rather because the Holy Spirit came upon her and he was conceived by the Holy Ghost. You notice the repetition of the adjective holy. That holy thing owes his existence and origin to the Holy Spirit. So a fresh start was made. Here was perfect humanity, perfect humanity which needed no regeneration. Jesus, who urged the necessity of the new birth in us, did not himself need to be born again. He needed no second birth of the Spirit because his first birth was of the Spirit. Thus he became the head of a new humanity, the second Adam, who derived his human nature not from the first Adam, but from the Holy Spirit's overshadowing the Virgin Mother. Why the second Adam couldn't be born of the first Adam, otherwise he would partake of the first Adam's humanity. No, he derives his perfect nature from the Holy Spirit overshadowing the Virgin Mother. If I may quote from Professor A.B. Bruce, a sinless man is as much a miracle in the moral world as a virgin birth is a miracle in the physical world. So the virgin birth throws light on his humanity, his sinlessness, and see his deity. Again, verse 35, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. We are not, of course, asserting that his deity owed its origin to his virgin birth, nor that his deity is proved and established by his virgin birth. We are simply saying that his virgin birth is congruous with the entry of the eternal Son into the world. Our belief in the deity of Jesus rests on other grounds. But once we have come to believe in the deity of Jesus, some supernatural entry of the pre-existent Son into the world is required. I say again, it's not that the virgin birth proves Christ's deity, but that his deity requires and to some extent explains the virgin birth. Some miracle surely must be necessary for the constitution of his single personality with two whole and perfect natures, Godhead and manhood, 
And the virgin birth is a seemly and satisfactory way by which the miracle was achieved. Let me then conclude. These great doctrines which are associated with the virgin birth, the humanity of Jesus, the sinlessness of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, are all vital Christian doctrines because they are all involved in our salvation. We sinners desperately need a saviour. And the only saviour who can be competent to save us from our sins is one who is both God and man and sinless. Divine he must be since only God can save us. Human too he must be if he is to represent man. And sinless also he must be for he must have no sins of his own from which he needs to be saved. Now the only sinless God-man, the only being who is both God and man and sinless, whom the world has ever known, is Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary, and therefore he, the Virgin-born Son of God, is the only Saviour of sinners. You've been listening to Paul Harvey followed by John Stott on this special Christmas program of Faith of Our Fathers. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.